Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of God for our meditation this morning is a portion of today's gospel from Mark chapter 2. I'll remind you of these words. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is the word of our God, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Every hotel in Israel has two sets of elevators. The regular elevators with which all of us are familiar. And the Shabbat, or Sabbath elevators. From sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday, you will probably want to avoid the Shabbat or Sabbath elevators. Because you see, the rabbis in Israel have determined that pressing a button in an elevator to select a specific floor to go to, and thus, and this is the key, completing an electrical circuit is work which is forbidden under the Sabbath law. For this reason, Shabbat elevators run automatically on the Sabbath, which means that they stop at each and every floor, open their doors, and then just sit there for about a minute or so. As you can imagine, this makes it really difficult to get to your floor if it happens to be on uh, your room, if it happens to be on the 12th floor of the hotel. Now you hear that. Let me ask you this question. Does all of that sound a little bit ridiculous? Well, that's because it is ridiculous. You see, in modern-day Israel, religious leaders have done the same thing that religious leaders did in Jesus' day, and that's that they've taken this beautiful Sabbath law and they've completely altered its purpose. They've turned it into this, this system uh, of rules and regulations that are complicated and often arbitrary that must be slavishly followed if you want to be right with, if you want to have favor with God. And thus they've taken this beautiful command of our God and they have turned it into a curse. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. That is God's command. But the purpose of this commandment today, of course, is to lead us to the true rest that is found only in Jesus Christ. That's what the word Sabbath means. In Jesus, we find rest from the horrible, impossible burden of trying to work out our own salvation, to save ourselves. And because of that rest, we also have the rest that allows us to joyfully get to work in a life that thanks and glorifies our God. Our text sets the scene for us. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. So they're walking along through these fields and they're picking heads of grain. And most likely what the disciples were doing is taking that head of grain and kind of rubbing it in their hands to knock off the chaff so that they could munch on the kernels. Now, we might react first and say, well, wait a minute, wasn't this a form of stealing? I mean, after all, they didn't plant that field. That field didn't belong to Jesus and his disciples. But actually, it wasn't stealing. You see, in his law, God had made a provision that allowed anyone to walk through his neighbor's field and, and pick a few grapes or a few heads of grain as a quick lunch on the go. What you couldn't do is go in and pick a bushel of grapes and you couldn't take a sickle and actually begin harvesting the grain, but you could pick a few little bits, again, for that lunch on the go. And, and God put this into his law to encourage people to be hospitable toward their neighbors and to encourage charity toward those who are in need. 
The Pharisees weren't concerned about that area of the law. They were concerned about something else. They said, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, what was unlawful about picking a few heads of grain? Their reasoning went something like this, most likely. God forbids work on the Sabbath. Harvesting is work. Jesus' disciples are harvesting grain, therefore they are working and they are doing what is unlawful, and they are sinning on the Sabbath. Jesus disagreed. As usual, the Pharisees were picking at nits in in an attempt to discredit Jesus and his ministry. But you know something? These men had just missed the entire point of the Sabbath law and really of all God's laws in general. Again, they had twisted those laws into this means of earning God's favor and his blessing. Jesus set them straight, and he did so by taking them to the Scriptures. He said, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Now, in the tabernacle, there was a table that held 12 special loaves of bread. Each loaf represented a different tribe of Israel. Once a week, those 12 loaves would be replaced by fresh loaves, and the leftover, the old loaves, would be given to the priest, and mind you, only to the priest, to eat as part of his food. On that special day, David came and he was starving. And so the priest, Abiathar, gave him some of that bread, and David and his companions ate it. Now you'll notice that fire did not rain down from heaven, nor did the earth open up and swallow them. And with this story, Jesus was illustrating the fact that that human need overrides religious ritualism. And just think about what would have happened if this had gone differently. Without that bread, David and his companions may very well have starved. Certainly they would have been very weak, which means that Saul, who was pursuing David and trying to kill him, would have caught up to him and maybe would have killed him, which means that David would not have ascended to the throne and the Messiah would not have descended from him. This is all a pretty big deal. Jesus summarized the whole lesson with these words. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God did not give the Sabbath law as a means to merit his favor, to earn something from him. Instead, it was his gift to mankind. It was his way of helping mankind to focus on true spiritual rest. How did the Sabbath law do that? Well, every Saturday, God wanted his people to take a day off. He wanted them to get some rest. But physical rest was not the only point, or indeed the main point. God wanted his people to worship him on the Sabbath. He wanted them to pay attention to his word, to hear it, to read it. He wanted them to revel in his promises and rejoice in his grace. He wanted them to be focused on that promise of the serpent crusher, the Messiah, who was going to bring rest and redemption for his people. So what about us today? Why don't we rest and worship on Saturdays? You know, there's a group called the Seventh-day Adventists, and they still do rest and worship on Saturdays. In my former parish, there was a large population of Seventh-day Adventists in the community, and they were very strong in their opinion that we Lutherans were wrong and that we should also be resting and worshiping on Saturdays instead of worshiping on Sundays. Why don't we still do that? Listen to these words which we heard before from Paul's pen in his letter to the Colossians. They're instructive. 
He said, Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So let's say you're, you're sitting on your back patio one Sunday evening, one summer evening, uh, listening to the Brewers game, and you hear a car pull up outside and a door slams, and you can hear somebody walking up the driveway, and they're going to come around back and talk to you. You don't know who it is, but there's no need to get up because you can just watch for their shadow. And you know from that shadow, you can learn a few things about that person. You can learn if, if that person is tall or short, male or female, whether they're bringing something or not, and so on. But of course, once the person comes into the backyard and onto the patio, you stop looking at their shadow, and instead you look at the individual. My friends, the Sabbath law served as a kind of shadow. It pointed forward to Jesus like that shadow does. It told people something about him, that the Messiah was going to bring them rest. But once the Messiah had arrived, once Jesus had come and done his work, the shadow of the Sabbath law was no longer necessary. And so it was no longer necessary to rest and worship on Saturdays. I've heard the third commandment described this way. Someone once said that the third commandment has a law shell and a gospel kernel or content. That law shell was worship and no work on Saturdays, and that is no longer in effect. What we really need to pay attention to is the gospel content. My friends, the, the sad fact of the matter is that so very often we just really don't. This is how Martin Luther described the third commandment, explained it. He said, We should fear and love God, that we do not despise preaching and his word, but regard it as holy and gladly hear and learn it. And maybe you're thinking to yourself right now, Pastor, <laughs> the people who really need to hear this, they're not here right now. They should be in God's house with us, hearing God's word, worshiping our Savior. There's certainly some truth to that. However, if you think they are the only ones who struggle with these words of Luther, who struggle to apply the third commandment to their lives, who struggle when it comes to hearing God's word and appreciating his gospel, then you are sadly mistaken. Oh, our, our hunger for God's word, our thirst for the glorious gospel of our Savior often leaves a lot to be desired. A fighter pilot was shot down over enemy territory. He was able to eject, he survived, but he was trapped behind enemy lines for a few days. During that time, as he was hiding out and trying to avoid the enemy, he was sustained by a letter that he carried around in his pocket. It was a love letter from his wife. And he took it out and he read it and he reread it over and over and over again until it became worn and tattered and filthy. But it was so very helpful to him. That letter sustained him. It kept his spirits up. It kept his hopes alive during that ordeal. My friends, we have a letter from our God, a love letter, a statement of his unconditional and undying love for us. We have his saving word. And yet sometimes we don't treat it like the special love letter that it is, the love letter that sustains us. Instead, we often treat it like it's the directions to the latest piece of furniture we purchased from Ikea, which means it's kind of optional at best. Let me ask you, where is your personal Bible right now? 
And for that matter, where are your copies of Luther's Catechism, of our hymnal, of the Meditations booklet or other devotional booklet? Do they often sit there on the counter or the coffee table or the nightstand clear for everybody to see, but also just as pristine as a museum exhibit? Or are you wearing those books out as you hear and read and study and inwardly digest them? What do you feed your family? I'm sure you feed them nutritious meals, delicious meals, as often as you can. But what do you feed them spiritually? Do you take time to gather together as a family around God's Word, maybe for a simple devotion at supper time or breakfast time or bedtime or whenever it may be? Or has life become kind of crazy and busy, and so that's something that kind of gets crowded out? How about this summer? Will summertime mean vacation time and also vacation time from Jesus and his word? Or when you're on vacation, will you seek out one of our churches or at the very least plan some family devotional time while you're away? My friends, if you think I'm standing up here six feet above contradiction just to scold you and to look down my nose at you again, you are sadly mistaken. I'm a sinner just like you, and I struggle with this commandment just like you do. I look into the mirror of God's holy law, and specifically the mirror of the third commandment, and I see a preacher who does not spend nearly as much time with the word of God that he preaches and teaches as he should. I see an often word-despising sinner who desperately needs a Savior. And I'm happy to report to you today, on the basis of that love letter from our God, that I have one, and so do you. Our Lord Jesus extends to each of us sinners this wondrous invitation. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. No longer are we crushed by the weight of our guilt and the impossible burden of trying to save ourselves. Our Lord Jesus has done it all for us. Perfect life, innocent death, glorious resurrection. Jesus fulfilled the entire law for us. He fulfilled the Sabbath law. He obeyed the third commandment. He always perfectly loved the word of God. And my friends, that perfection counts for us. And then that perfect son of God walked the hard and long road to the cross where he poured out his priceless, precious, perfect blood in payment for the world's sins, in payment for everything that we have done, every daydream during the sermon, every dusty Bible, every missed opportunity to hear and study and grow in and learn and apply and live God's word. All of that has been washed away in the blood of the Lamb. This is why Jesus is called the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the King of rest. In him we find true rest for our souls, the rest of forgiveness. He's freed us again from that impossible burden of trying to save ourselves. He himself has saved us completely. He said so. He said, it is finished, paid in full. And my friends, he proved that it is finished by his glorious resurrection on the third day. Now, do you realize what this means? What this means for you and me in our everyday lives? Since we are no longer burdened with our guilt and our sins, since we are no longer burdened with the impossible task of trying to save ourselves, we can really get to work 
joyous, meaningful work. We can get to the work of giving thanks to our Savior God. We can do this not to obtain salvation from Him, but to thank Him for the salvation that He has already given us in His Son. You see, fear and guilt are no longer what drive us. Instead, we are motivated, we are moved, we are energized by the good news of a rest-giving Savior. Christ's love compels us. And so the pressure is off. We can obey God's commands not to earn a place in heaven, but to thank him for the place that our Lord Jesus has already reserved for us there. We can show love to our neighbors, not to gain love from God as if that was even possible, but to thank him for that love that is already ours completely at his son's cross in his empty tomb. We can come here to God's house. We can come to church. We can worship not out of a sense of fear, not out of a sense of obligation, not to keep the elders off of our backs, but to thank God because he's taken the sin and guilt off of our backs. To thank him because he has already credited Christ's perfect righteousness to us. To express our gratitude to him because we are dressed in the robes of Jesus' holiness. To give thanks to our God because we are completely forgiven in Christ and our eternal future is secure. Shabbat elevators. I remember the first time I saw a sign for one of those and wondered what in the world this thing was. Well, I can tell you what it is. It's sad, it's misguided, and it is useless legalism. Shabbat elevators, my friends, we don't need them because we have the Lord Jesus to lift us up. He did it all. He lived and died and rose for you and for me and for all. My friends, hear his word, revel in, savor his promises, find your true rest in Jesus. Amen.